Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Go and do it right now. There's some awesome guests lined up for the next few weeks, and you don't want to miss any of them. Now, as I said, this is episode 98. We're nearing the 100 mark now, and I've had 25-plus Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on, some real legends on the series so far. So if this is your first listen, then please do hit subscribe or follow whatever it is on your podcast app and take a scroll back through some of the fantastic previous episodes and give them a listen. Also, please do check out on YouTube. The channel is growing at a crazy rate, and there's a great community of rock fans on there who get involved in the daily poll and the debates that rages. So please do check out the channel. But for today's show, then, it features another very outspoken rock hero, a man whose career has seen him ride the wave of rock stardom and then bottoming out, but then becoming a household name again through TV, radio, reality shows, Broadway, voiceovers and books as well. I'm talking about the enigmatic Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. Now, he's often in the news for his outspoken views, and I think I managed to keep him on track until near the end, talking about the music business and his career, and boy, does he have so many great stories to tell. He talks about the dynamic in the band and how he felt alienated right from the beginning. We've got stories about Lemmy Kilmister playing iconic festivals like Reading and Donington Monsters of Rock, how he wrote the band's biggest album in 45 minutes, the iconic videos which were at first pushed back by MTV, there's the hits, his bankruptcy, his wife, and whether we're likely to see Twisted Sister back on stage as well. Plus, his new work as an author as well, so much in there for you to listen to and enjoy. So please do enjoy this one. It's a great chat with a charismatic Dee Schneider. I'm delighted to be joined by the wonderful Dee Schneider. Thank you so much for joining us, Dee. Thanks for calling me wonderful. 
Uh, I've been called much worse. <laughs> we'll not go any further with that line, but uh, we'll start at the very beginning then, because we like to hear about the careers and things like that. And uh, obviously you joined Twisted Sister in 1976 and, and JJ and Eddie, they were a few years older than you. And uh, I read that you once said that they treated you like a kid. You felt a little bit ostracized at the very beginning. So you felt like you had to prove yourself. So what did you do right at the start? What did you do to kind of prove yourself and, and make yourself that, that lead man of the group? Well, you know, I very much was, I was, uh, you know, two and a half, three years younger than Eddie and Jay. They were from Manhattan and the, the Bronx. I was from Long Island. You know, I was the Rube, uh, you know, and, uh, and, uh, but, and, and when I look back on it, I understand. I mean, I remember going to the first time to JJ's apartment and in Manhattan and Eddie picking up Eddie in the Bronx, a terrified B, I was just like, jaw drop like looking around like mystified the big city i was a rube you know and they treated me like i mean i i got in the band because of my voice but they treated me like that but i took great offense to it at the time and i felt very alienated and it set a tone for the entire uh his for the entire time i was in the band it wasn't until after we broke up and i had time to reflect and look back and then we reformed that I was able to patch things up with them and understand where they were coming from, you know? So, um, it's, you know, so, uh, the once when I realized that, that I was on the outside looking in with these guys, they were friends. The drummer uh, at the time we had was also a friend of JJ's from another band. The bass player was from the original lineup of Twisted Sister. When I say original, when the band formed as a bar band, there was a guy in there, Kenny Neal. So it was like these four guys and then older guys and then me, this kid. So I immediately just sort of went into my room and started writing songs. And uh, with, with, with ill intent, I was going to show them. That was my whole thing. I would show them that I was worth something. I would show them. And it was with anger and hostility towards my band members that I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I didn't party. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I already had Suzette, my girlfriend. So I just stayed inside and just wrote endlessly until I was just overwhelming. until I got good at it and I was overwhelming them with material. And they had to take notice. Say, oh my God, this guy's actually got something going on. And did it make a difference to, to your stage presence as well? I mean, obviously, you, you're known for your flamboyant stage presence and things like that. Did, did Do you feel the need to really push it out big time when you're on stage with them? When I, I always was, uh, was, was very, um, what's the word? Um, I, I, I'm lacking the word. It's too early. It's early in the morning here. For me, it's early. I just woke up. But, uh, so, uh, but I was always very active on stage. But I joined a band where JJ was the leader. It was his band. Uh, as I said in my memoir, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, I was never even officially told I was in the band. Uh, JJ said, um, well, we'll see how it works out. That was, and then proceeded to fire the drummer, um, who I was just talking because, and, and he was about my age. He was another rube from Long Island. So I felt, I felt my job was always on the line mm. and I would just step back after I sang a song and JJ would front the band. He would talk to the crowd and blah, blah, blah. But I was paying attention. I was studying and slowly I started, you know, inserting myself in the front man conversation because he was the front man. And eventually I just pushed him completely. And again, with malice, 
I had a lot of, I was out to take over the band and show all these four guys that D Snyder was mattered and D Snyder was important to twisted sister. And, you know, ultimately I became like the driving force. Um, but it was, yeah, it was very, very deliberate on my part to show them and, and not the world show them. And after them, I had to show the world. Yeah, you certainly did. But let, let's start with the, the, the tri-state area. You guys were huge. You were playing to, to thousands of people a night, but you just couldn't get that record deal. And obviously, I'm over here in the UK, so I want to touch on the fact that you guys actually did get your first break. Your, your first label signed you was here in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, we we um, sent we did so many demos. And, uh, you know, I was writing endlessly, and we just we made five, count them, five full attempts at every major label and minor label in the United States, five demos, five, you know, five packages, five, you put together your photo, five. And we were rejected <laughs> resoundingly five times by every label. Some labels like Atlantic, and that's another story. Uh, the president went and rejected us on other offs like ATCO, like labels because they were looking at us go, no, you can't sign them. No, they, he would actually reach out and say, you can't sign them. So, um, we eventually, out of just desperation, looked over to Europe and we had a lot of missteps there, but eventually signed with Secret Records, who had one or two bands of no, they had the exploited. They had the exploited. That was the band that they had, big band, but they were indie label. And this was a big undertaking for them to bring an American band over to the UK, house them, feed them. We ate a lot. Uh, you know, and, and put them in a studio. It, and ultimately, I think it, it did secret records in Martin, the late Martin Hooker, who went on for music for, to, to music for nations and did quite well. But, but that was his first label attempt. And, uh, I think we killed it. I think his intentions were good, but, uh, they went under. <laughs> Wow. Um, how did you find coming to the UK then? Because I spoke to Pat Travers, who did something similar. He came over to the UK, I think it was mid to late 70s, and he got his break over here as well. But how did you find the era of of kind of the early 80s, late 70s when you came over? And and because it was a very dark time, wasn't it, the UK at that point? It was a weird time. It was, uh, you know, it was the the, the earliest days of uh, New Album. And, um, and it was the crossover the punk scene was was drying, not not was was dying. It was mutating. Yeah. So that's where you find a band like Motorhead riding that center right there, being punk enough for the punks and metal enough for the metalheads. I remember the first show we did at the Marquee. Um, the room was packed, but with punks, metalheads, skins, and everybody's looking around, going. What like what are you doing here? Because everybody, no, there wasn't a lot of photos of us. Nobody they'd heard some recorded some tapes or whatever the the rough cuts. I don't even know if rough cuts was out yet, but they they nobody was quite sure what we were. And again, that was that transitional point in the music scene. Yeah, and you mentioned Motorhead there. I mean, they obviously huge here in the UK. And and Lemmy he spoke really highly of you guys because you did tour with them, you played with them a few times. What was it like being around Lemmy then? Because obviously he was a larger than life character himself, wasn't he? Lemmy, I'm getting chills, all right, right now. Because Lemmy, when I think about Lemmy, because my wife has planted something in my head, which is insane, and we'll talk about it. But Lemmy became our savior. Um, we got on a bill at the Wrexham Football Stadium with Budgie and Tank and a whole bunch of other signed bands, metal bands, 
football stadium show is it's like our first performance in the UK. And because of a cancellation, a relationship my manager had with Motorhead's manager, we wound up special guesting. And we we were going to go out on stage for the first time in daylight. And <laughs> this is 1981, 82, I'm, I'm somewhere around there. So, uh, you know, the legends of Canville, you know, uh, Anvil being canned off the stage and bottled off the stage at Reading of Girl being bottled off the stage. You remember girl because, yeah, because they wore little makeup. Um, this stuff was led for the slightest, uh, in it, just, just idea that any femininity at all. I think, I think lips from Anvil wore a fishnet sleevelet <laughs> and played with a dildo. And that was it. Too gay. That's it. We're, we're bottling you off the stage, you know? So now we're walking out in the daylight for the first time. There was actual conversation, not from me. But from my bandmates about not putting on our costumes and makeup. Okay. I mean, our first song was called What You Don't Know Sure Can Hurt You. And I wrote it to be performed in silhouette so the audience couldn't see us. So they would hear us first. And then a third of the way through the song, the lights would come on and go, and this is what we look like. And people go, oh, I didn't expect that. You know, but, but they were already taken in by this, by the band. Um, now we were going to walk out in broad daylight. And you'll see if you can see pictures from that day, Mark Daniel Mendoza with his denim vest over the top of his stage costume, sunglasses on, covering up his eye makeup. <laughs> uh, but I just like, look, you know, I've had so many fights. I've been down, been wearing, if I was going to take this stuff off, it would have been a long time ago. Lemmy, who I always said, uh, recognize the smell of human feces as he walked past our, because we were <laughs> shitting our pants. Uh, he came in, and and this is partially thanks to the late Pete Way, late Killing Kill Mister, let me kill Mister. Pete had we were was producing under the Blade, which hadn't been released yet, and Pete put a call into Lemmy, who was a mate, and said, "Hey man, these are good guys. Take care of them." So you know, I, I think between you know, besides sort of sensing that we were terrified to go on before Motorhead because that was a pretty tough crowd, and uh, Lemmy came in, and I was told he said because at that time I didn't speak Lemmy. I just heard, <laughs> and I'm like, oh. and then someone came in. He said, Jill Massey, she was, uh, she worked with his management. He said, um, he'll, he'll bring the band on. The headliner offering an unknown band to come out before the, his show. Let I, I wouldn't be seen. I'd be like, I mean, that's, 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 the, that's, like, and here arrives the stars of the show. Lemmy, and when we walked out on the stage, I'm telling you, you saw the bottles, you saw the cans, you saw the arms. Uh, it was going back like this, and then Lemmy walks out. And then again, he said something in the microphone, which I was told <laughs> later was, here's the President Lives from America. Give him a listen. And everybody just went like, lowered it a little bit, and they just stood there, and we just went for it. And within minutes, people said, whoa, these Yanks are insane and crazy and Whatever they look like, this is amazing. And at the end of that show, I one of the most memorable ovations of my career as was as we sat in the locker room of the football stadium 10 minutes after we'd gone off. And we hear and my road manager comes in and goes, listen, because we're all talking and you know, we're all energized. Listen, and you could hear the stadium going, twisted, sister, twisted. 10 minutes after we're off the stage. So we're like, whoa. And then Lemmy walked in and said, I brought you on. You bring, you bring Motorhead out to me. 
Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, again, like I'm, I'm this punter from the States. I'm, a, you know, and now I walk out to introduce more. I'm getting chills. It was such a moment. And of course, I immediately went to the side of the stage and just headbanging for the whole, then he dedicated America to me. I was like, I'm going to keep headbanging. Um, but the thing I was going to say about, let me just started showing up at gigs announced, sometimes unannounced. He'd come through the front door of the marquee club and he'd walk in and come in the back room but us came down he'd bring us on he'd get up and jam with us uh spontaneously and this generosity on his part like paved the way for us for acceptance you go to the reading festival where he rejoined fast eddie clark they were having a heated uh public uh, press battle over the breakup of, of fast eddie leaving motorhead and the, he re- comes on stage and joins fast eddie and Pete Way and Twisted Sister for the finale of It's Only Rock and Roll, but I like it at Reading and helps to just cement our relationship with the UK. So I know I'm going rambling on, but this is what your people want to hear. So this is what, so we're at the memorial and I'm sitting with my wife and everybody was at the Lemmy Memorial. I say everybody in the, you know, Ozzy was there and Slash and Duff were there and Foo Fighters were there. And I mean, it goes on and on. And then, but beyond that, his shoemaker was there, Pascal Cooper, a family that followed him around Europe. And Lemmy would always invite them backstage because oh, yeah. they followed him everywhere. They were there and they all got up and spoke. And my wife is very spiritual. And she leans over to me and says, I think Lemmy was an angel. I said, what? She goes, I, they say that they sent angels down to earth to guide us on along our, on our journey. And I says, I think Aunt Lemmy may have been sent down. Listen to these people talking. Everybody has a story where Lemmy affected their life, changed their lives, helped them along the way. Every single one of these people is getting Triple H for the wrestler. Everybody's getting up there and everybody's got a tale to tell about how Lemmy touched their lives. And I said, so you're telling me that God sent down a biker pirate <laughs> to guide me on my way. And she said to me, would you have listened to someone with long flowing robes? And yeah. I just looked at her and, and then I looked, listened to the stories people saying. So I'm not the spiritual guy, but that was Lemmy for Twisted Sister. And when I think back on it, he was so there because we had the under the blade record. We lost the deal and he stayed with us. We, when we did the tube, him and Robbo came up and jammed with us on national TV again helping make it one of those moments. And that's when we got our Atlantic record deal. He was always there when we needed him. And he and I remained friends, you know, um, for his entire life. And I'm honored to have been one. Oh, incredible, incredible stories. It's such a legend. It's lovely to hear these sorts of things said about him as well. Um, just quickly, one more thing relating to the UK, and you touched on a big show there with Budgie and things like that and, and Motorhead, but you, you did uh, Monsters of Rock, didn't you, 1983? And again, what an incredible lineup. White uh, White Snake and Meatloaf and ZZ Top and Dio and Diamond Head. That's a hell of a lineup. I remember speaking to uh, Stephen Piercy from Rat, and he said that they had a pig's head thrown up on stage when, when they did their show one year. I mean, what do you remember of, of your experience with uh, with Donington? I remember I have many memories. Uh, well, first of all, at Reading, we were getting bottled off the stage. We were getting bottled, not off the stage. And I stopped the show and famously called out, and that's a term for meaning uh, invited to fight 35,000 people one at a time on the side of the stage. And the people just started laughing because they were laughing because this Yank's crazy. They Because they, they could see I was serious. One at a time, line up, let's go. 
stop throwing. And at that point, they sort of, you know, said, well, you know what? Let's give these guys a chance. And then, you know, we, we, we rocked out, of course. And then Lemmy and Pete Blay and Fast Eddie came on stage. Sadly, they're all gone now, those three guys, you know, and uh, we had a moment. So when we got to Donington and we went out on stage, now we have a hit record in the UK. I am on me. Kids are back. We've got a hit album. So the audience, the majority of the 45,000 people there are really into us. I would say maybe 10% aren't into the band. You know what? 4,500 people can throw a lot of stuff. And those 4,500 people started throwing everything they could get their hands on. So I tried the same stage rap. All right, side stage. But they, everybody had heard that one already. So they were like, ah, and they just kept throwing stuff. So I ultimately, uh, you know, invited my, our fans, the other 35,000 people. I said, if you know, where are my friends? And the place, you know, those 35,000 people, hands in the air. I said, you know, well, if my friend was on stage, and someone was throwing stuff at him, I would kick the shit out of them. And if it was too big for me, I'd get a whole bunch of us and we'd pull that guy down and start beating the piss out of him. Well, the next song was like, it was like Altamont out there. I remember fires. I remember just <laughs> fights all over the place as we're like ripping, I don't tear it loose, whatever we were doing appropriately. And, uh, yeah. So that was, that was a, uh, that was a moment. And we, you know, they stopped throwing things. <laughs> Oh, I love hearing sort of stuff like that. It's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, now, obviously, you guys, uh, the image, the, the videos, it was MTV was a huge part of that era when you came through and you, you broke again in America, big style, didn't you? And uh, uh, like we said, the videos are very famous now. Did you have much involvement in in the concept of those and the writing of those or the creating of those? They were my ideas. There you go. You know, uh, I came. Um, so Atlantic Records, who had rejected us so many times, you know, <laughs> But and it was took Phil Carson, who's uh, my manager today. He was the head of Atlantic Records Europe, the man he had signed ABBA, ACDC, Genesis. Uh, you know, I mean, he was he, he just yes. He knows what he's doing? Yeah, yeah. He he signed a few <laughs> bands, and uh, it took his weight to challenge the president of Atlantic Records, Doug Morris, and who said, "It's on your head, Phil." Wow. When Phil said, "I'm signing the band," and he said. On, he's on your head. He says, on my head, like ABBA, ACDC, Genesis, yes. And he went down and list. He said, sure, okay, it's on my head. And ultimately, he was he was proven correct. Um, but when we came back uh, to the United States, uh, well, I won't get into the whole backstory, but they decided, okay, uh, you can't stop rock and roll despite lack of support in America, went on to go gold. And so they said they sort of had no choice but to support us. And it was the early days of MTV, and they brought in a video director, his first time video director, but he had done concert video, Marty Callner, who went on to become one of the biggest rock video guys in the 80s, and uh, who I'm still friends with today, by the way, uh, one of the few business friends I have. And Marty came in, and he was cool enough and smart enough to see a young gun who was passionate, and, had, and he said, what do you see for this video? And I told him. I said, dad's yelling at the son. The son turns into me, drags the father down the stairs. He said, oh, hold it, hold it. Let's start writing this down. And he and I constructed the, we're not going to take a video. They want a rock video. And, you know, and which went on to be historic videos. But yeah, it came from my crazy mind because I saw the possibility yeah. 
in video in the earliest stages. And and people weren't really doing the sort of a passion play thing where you had the whole acted thing up front first. Matter of fact, the first thing Les Garland from MTV, he was very upset with our video. He said, this isn't a rock video. This is method acting. And he clipped off the whole front and started with the father walking in the bedroom and never let that video out of medium rotation because, uh, because and yet it went on to become this huge phenomenon that other bands like Van Halen, like Motley Crue, everybody started imitating the style, Twisted Sister style of storytelling, a little mini, you know, mini passion play videos. Yeah, absolutely fantastic stuff. And you mentioned I want to rock. I mean, that's it's a song that transcends popular culture from the metalheads to the to the young kids that watch SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, it really does. Everybody knows it. My my ten year old knows it, and he sings it. He loves it. Um, but take me back to to the concept of that song. Then, I mean, what do you remember about working on it in the studio and getting it down and getting it on tape? And and what did you think when you did have it recorded and sealed? I mean, what did you think? This is it. This is going to be big. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been blessed that I have a, I've, I have a faucet of creativity that I turn on and off when I as needed. So when I go to write a book like Frats, it's a novel, uh, it's available, um, and I just go in that zone and turn on that faucet and start creating. When I go to write a screenplay, I start creating. I've written musicals, I start creating. When I write songs, I will 
I usually work off of a, of a, a I keep a, I used to, I don't write anymore. Uh, song wise, that is, I used to keep a list of titles of song titles for inspiration. And I would have my song titles and I would get my tape recorder handheld usually. And I would just look at a song title and get inspiration from the title that twisted sisters. We're not going to take it. Um, I mean, stay hungry album, the big, our biggest selling album. Uh, I wrote in 45 minutes, essentially wrote the entire record. My wow. wife was going out to this. My, my son was asleep in the crib. Uh, my wife went out to go to the grocery store and uh, I said, okay, I got a few minutes. Let me turn on. The, let me, I didn't say, wouldn't say turn on the faucet. I look at it now like that and work on some song ideas. I spent, put a bunch of ideas on tape and they're, they're like, like these are little bits and pieces, but usually the whole song, but not every word. And, um, uh, and when she came back after 45 minutes, um, she said, uh, how's it going? I said, I think I, I, I got some good ideas for the new record. And every song from Stay Hungry was on there, except The Price, which I had written in Jimmy Page's bathroom while we were recording. You can't stop rock and roll. But that's another story. Um, so I, I Want to Rock was in there and We're Not Going to Take It was in there. Those two songs. Uh, and um, I knew that these were hits. Now. I want to rock. I I become, you know, like anything, uh, people, you know, you thought was talking about writing songs for the band from the early days. Uh, JJ manages Twisted Sister. Now he's constantly with with a Tupac Shakur of heavy metal. Uh, He keeps coming up with new albums to put out. I'm going, Oh my God, where do you find that tape and this tape? And I listen back on some of my early songs. I go, Oh, no wonder we didn't get a record deal. I was, those were terrible, terrible songs, you know, but now, at this point, I put in my time and I was getting pretty good at crafting. And I got in my mind that this is 1983. I'm writing for you stay hungry album or 82, whatever. Uh, cause I always wrote it ahead of time. I got in my mind that if I could combine the, the Iron Maiden gallop with an anthem with an anthemic sing along song. And Slade is my inspiration when it comes to anthemic songs. But if I could combine that metallic, like that, that maiden. So I just, I remember with I Want to Rock sitting there going, doing the maiden gallop. And then I just, I want to rock. And all of a sudden I just was off the races and, and, you know, I got to the end of that. And I stopped recording for a second to move on to the next song idea. And I go, well, I think that was pretty good, you know, and then I keep moving. Later on, I'd go through maybe 25, 30 ideas that I had recorded in the 45 minutes and sift through, narrow it down to 15, 20. And then the band, we demo those and, and, and then the band would vote on which 10 they like best. The band and the crew and the management, everybody would vote. And, uh, I want to rock was in that batch, but that was, it was actually like, like I got to make, I told Clive Burr when he was in Desperado with me, I said, dude, I said, I got to be honest, man. I want to rock. I said, that was your groove, man. I was, it was a, it was a Clive Burr gallop, you know, which Patton applied for baby. He created that sort of feel him and him and Steve for Iron Maiden. That be, that defined the band, you know, poor Clive. He very much felt he didn't get the credit he deserved. Mm-hmm. For his, because his name was enlisted as a songwriter, but he would talk about being in the in the studio in rehearsals, and Steve starting to play that like the like the groove for um for uh, Run to the Hills, and and him very creatively coming up with that very unique that boom 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 that, that Indian drum beat, which sort of defined the song, 
Yeah. And then it becomes Run to the Hills, which is a, about the American Indians, but it really started with, you know, doom, 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 doom. That doesn't sound like an, uh, an Indian thing. Well, you start putting, doom, doom, da, doom, doom, da. And you start putting in those, those drum beat that Clive did. And Clive felt very, very hurt that he never wasn't really appreciated because, you know, Nico, God love him. Great guy, great drummer. Um, basically just continue with Clive. The definite, the Iron Maiden, what Iron Maiden defined themselves as in those first three records that just continue on. And you look where Nico comes from. He wasn't playing that style with Pat Travers. He wasn't playing that style with the bands he was with before. He's a, he's a journeyman drummer. But when he joined Maiden, he goes, okay, I got to be a Maiden drummer. Well, that was the Clive Burr groove, man. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, I don't want to take things in a dark twist, but I did read as well that you said that um, go losing dark, everything. Go dark. <laughs> no, go dark. No, go dark. We did say that losing everything was was um, one of the best things that happened to you. It was a real humbling experience. And and I mean, talk us through that a little bit, if you don't mind. So you know, I had a huge success in the eighties, and by the late eighties, uh, well, early nineties, really. But by the late eighties, things were starting to on the down sliding. And by the early nineties, I was broke and I can't blame management. I can't blame drugs. I can't blame drink. It was me, you know, and, and what did they say? Well, why? I said, well, the, the ego that drives you to believe you're going to get there when you arrive, that same ego won't allow you to believe it's over. And, you know, and so you continue to borrow against future albums, future tours, people advance you money until you get to the point where people stop advancing you, the band breaks up, the music scene changes, and suddenly you're standing there and no one's buying what you're selling and you, and you got no money and now you got three kids. So that was a very, very, you know, dark time and it really brought me down to earth. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was riding a, uh, I remember in 91, riding a bicycle to a desk job answering phones in an office for a couple hundred dollars a week. Um, wow. People walking in, this is 91, 92. Twisted's heyday was 84, 85, 86. So it's not that long and people no. are going, hey, aren't you? And I'm lying. And, and I go, no, no, I'm not him. I just look like him. And they go, it's uncanny. And because no one would believe that that guy from MTV would be sitting there at a desk answering the phone. You know, but, but that's how dark and dire things got. Um, but I would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it forced me. First of all, it humbled me. It brought me back to earth. I think if I kept on my trajectory, I know I wouldn't be married uh, during the, you know, by 87, Suzette and I were separated. We've been together 47 years now and, uh, I only had one child, but you know, we, we, you know, went to couples therapy. We worked through it, but me coming back down to earth and having, a one person who, and one of the reasons we really broke up is because she never put up with my rock star bullshit. <laughs> you know, she was like, you know, when you get to a certain point, nobody says no to you. Yeah. You know, everybody says yes, man. And this is a woman I've known for years now, and she's a tough Brooklyn chick. She wasn't going to yes me to death. She was still the same honest person. And you, you know, when you're a rock god, you don't want to hear honesty. You want to be worshipped. And 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 Suzette don't play that. So, um, but I got you know, but it but it brought me maybe get back down and start over. And this time around, I was just more appreciative, respectful of people around me, of, of what it takes to, and, 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 and the, what is it? The word, the delicacy of success, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, 
just because you have it, it don't mean it's for, doesn't mean it's forever. You know, and as I, I went into radio and TV and movies and acting and voiceover work, I've, I've you know, I've done really well in all of these things. And uh, I remember, you know, I'd have be doing radio interviews and and grabbing young, like, you know, happening bands by the collars and going, don't, don't parlay, parlay. They what you want to negotiate? No, 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 parlay the success you have into other things because it's not a guarantee that you're going just going to keep stay there. For most of us, it was three to five years, and then then your career dies off. The Aussies are the point zero 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 one percenters. Mo and Kiss, that's the rarity. Most have a have a window or a moment, you know. And some of the bands like Lit, Guster, Biohazard, those guys went on. Uh, Lit, the guys in Lit, because and they've told me, I'm friends with these guys. Says, you made me just. I took the money we were making off our successful album, and I bought a restaurant nightclub, which he still has a great club in Anaheim, uh, California. And and uh, Evan Seinfeld went into porn. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, I, I'm, okay, that's your thing. But he became very successful uh, make, producing porn films. Uh, we use his money for that. And the guys from Guster went into a whole ecological thing and green thing uh, that, 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 that is, is, his wife and him are very successful. So they've thanked me for sort of warning them, yeah. there's a cliff up there. And I fell off. You know, everybody says they're going to make it, but they nobody tells you, that it's not a finish line. We view it as one. Yeah. But it's just a point in your career. And now it continues on from there, you know, and nobody ever prepares you for that. Incredible stuff. And it's so good to hear that you, you were helping the, the next generation as well. And they actually took took notice and took heed of, of your advice as well, which was great to hear. Um, now, obviously, as you said, you, you went on to, to be a success in so many other things, TV and radio and, and Broadway and voiceovers and everything else. And um, you, you guys came back as well and you've played again as Twisted Sister in the past. And you, you're speaking recently about bands that are still doing it and doing their farewell tours over and over again. Now, you guys have, have said you're not doing any touring and again, that, that's, that's finished. But have you left the door open perhaps for any kind one-off gigs or any special shows or anything like that no i can't see uh doing a 90 or two hour set i can't see singing 18 to 25 sh songs uh you know um it was a, a, a famous movie in the 70s series of movies called dirty harry yeah. with clint eastwood and one of the famous lines was a man's got to know his limitations and um and that is me. You know, I, I did a few solo albums after Twisted. Um, really happy with the last couple albums, especially for the love of metal. Just sort of, uh, thanks to Jamie Josta, reinserting re me back into the conversation as a metal vocalist and as a, an important vocalist, uh, you know, and doing some very memorable shows whether, you know, particularly Bloodstock, um, you know, which were documented and are for the, on For the Love of Metal Live. So I, I felt I left, you know, on a high note. I was still performing at a pretty good pace. Uh, but I, you know, you got to be true to yourself. I know, you know, neck surgery, throat surgery, shoulder surgery, knee surgery, <laughs> and more to come if I was going to keep, stay out there on the field, so to speak, especially performing at the level I like to perform at. There's a radio DJ named Eddie Trunk in the States. And, and he said, you're right, D. He says, you painted yourself in a corner. He says, Alice Cooper was always sort of the slinky, snarling. Yeah. We just was sort of walking around the stage and being creepy. And he could do that at 75 or however old he is today. He says, you 
were always like shot out of the cannon guy, come running out and just thrashing. And he goes, and we expect that. And I would be disappointed if you don't do that. And I said, and I'm disappointed that it hurts when I throw the horns. When I throw horns, I can't throw them straight up and it hurts. I said, it's not supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to hurt. So, you know, so um, I just, uh, you know, I've been, but I've been blessed that, um, like I said, I, I, even though I lost everything, I got everything back. Yeah. And I also have other avenues. I've been doing radio for over 30 years, voiceover over 30 years, acting, writing, you know, now I've got a novel out. So, so I've, I've opened so many other doors for myself. I'm not like many of my peers who, and, and this isn't a criticism, but they're, they're one note horns. It's what they do. So they're forced to stay out there. And even though they've gone from arenas down to local club, you know, but they're still out there. We've all seen that. And it's tough to watch sometimes that documentary on the suite. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen that one, I was it Brian. Was it Brian? It was coming out of a club pub, you know, where he was performing and it was just tough, you know, that so these are our heroes. These are our heroes. They should always be up there. You know, and yet to see them down there, I, I don't, I don't have to do that. So I don't want people's last memories of me to be, they saw me in a local club and there was a handful of people there. And I was, and I was going through the motions because I couldn't sing anymore and I couldn't perform anymore. I, so I'm blessed that I don't have to do it. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. And and moving on, you've mentioned it a couple of times now. Where you're you're busy with everything, but you have just brought out your first fictional novel. You, you you've held it up a couple of times. It's called Frats. Uh, go and tell us about it. Spill the beans. Well, Frats is, and I it's available. I'm sure. I don't know if it's available in stores in the UK, but I'm sure it could be ordered on Amazon or something like that. Um, in your English speaking countries, you'll get it. Uh, it is not about rock and roll. It's not about me. Um, although there is a, there is a, a, there's a, what do they call it? An Easter egg hidden in there somewhere that if you can okay. decipher it, you'll see that I am inserted because it's, it's set where I grew up, mm-hmm. um, in the years I grew up and in a, a gang, uh, situation, situation that existed where I grew up that I lived in, they were called high school fraternities like college. Um, but there were, they had Greek letters. They had charters with the police. They were, they were fraternities, but they were basically just gangs walking around the school wearing their colors. And they were allowed to because they were legit because they were fraternities. They weren't gangs. And, um, I grew up in that environment. I thought that was the way of suburbia. Uh, and, and it wasn't until I started traveling and it would come up in conversation that people all over the world would go, high school fraternity? What is that? And like, you didn't have those. No, we didn't have those. So I would tell them the stories of, of the brutality and the violence and stuff like that. And I was, I was one of the, I was a big weird guy trying not to get my ass kicked. So I was the observer. I wasn't in one of the frats, but, um, I know about them really, really, really well. And then I wound up becoming friends, good friends with best friends with one the leader of the evil frat. When he, of course, you know, people grow up, they, they, they get wiser and smarter and they, they, and if hopefully they, change their lives like my friend did. But um, so I got a lot of insight into a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And I, the story was very rich. So it's, this story is based on actual events. It's amalgam of all true stories, virtually everything in the book actually happened, but it's not just to one person. I have a Bobby Kovacs is a fictional character who uh, gets transferred into the high school in his senior year, has no idea of the minefield that is Baldwin High School, 
and the first day of school crosses the wrong person and winds up being just uh, just pursued by this fraternity, this gang, and having to protect himself by joining one of the other fraternities, and his whole life goes down to a downward spiral. It's a, it's a pretty intense, pretty dark, pretty violent book, but everybody's saying it's a page turner. I've been writing for over 30 years. I promise you people, I'm actually a really good writer. <laughs> it shocks people, but I, when everybody else was getting high, I was literally in the dressing room writing. That's I sat in my room writing, 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 reading, studying, writing. So I've been doing for now it's getting to almost 40 years that I've been writing. So I felt it was time to do a novel and uh and uh, and you will not be disappointed. Money back guaranteed. That is if you, if you see me on the street and you come up to me and you say, I didn't like the book, I won't punch you in the face. I'll say, okay, and I'll give you back your 25 quid or whatever it is. I don't know. <laughs> And as we said, it's called Frats by Dee Snyder, and it'll be available on all pretty much online outlets if you can't get it in your local store. So definitely do check that one out. Are you proud of it? You know what? And then now I'm talking to your listeners, and maybe to you too, you know, and I'm saying we often, many of us talk about, I'll write that book, or I'm going to write a movie, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. We talk about it, or I'm going to travel, or I'm going to get out of I'm going to get out of Scotland and I'm going to move where it's warm. I'm going down to, I'm going to Florida. You know, we talk, you know, it's like 1%, 10%, 5%, whatever, who actually follow through and do it. And that, and, and you got to, when you're writing, you first and foremost have to be writing for yourself because you want to do it because there's a better than not chance that you won't, it won't go any further. Then you writing the end, printing it out, sitting on your desk, you're looking at it and going, I, but you're going, I did it. There's a great feeling in, I did it. I said it, I did it. And you maybe told friends that you were going to do it. And you say, Hey, I wrote that book, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you're going to try and get it published, a screenplay. You're going to try and sell it to get it made into a movie. But the, the ultimate satisfaction is with just because it takes time. It, it's, it's, it's a process. And so I say to everybody out there, don't talk about it. Don't be one of those people who talks their whole life. Do it. And, and, and you say, well, it's such a big thing. Don't look at it like a finished book. Like, how do I get there? Just start on word one, page one, and just start writing. Just keep chipping at it. And eventually one day, and maybe years, this started, I started this, not that I worked on it constantly, but I started it at Frats during uh, COVID. Uh, my wife and I live in, uh, have a house in, um, in Belize, which used to be British Honduras, right on the beach. And I'm down there and I'm like, you know, got all this free time and going, what are you going to do? I'm sitting here watching TV. And I was, you know, I, said, I was wanting to write that book. So I said, started it then. And, you know, I finished it this past year, you know, chipping away at it, put it down, came back to it because it's a process. But I, again, your answer to your question is, yeah, I'm very proud of it, but mostly that I said I would and I did it. I'm, it's, I'm glad it's been published. People can buy it. People can read it. People are reading it and loving it. That's the bonus. That's the bonus. But yeah, I'm, I'm very proud. Of just, just, hey, man, you didn't talk shit. I hate shit talkers and I pride myself on not being one. Just like with the, re, with, just like with retirement, we're retiring. And people keep saying, so when's the reunion? That was 2016. <laughs> There's no reunion. Oh, and answer your question. No, we're not we're full set. I've always said, you know, the, the the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame in California inducted us. We gathered. We did three songs together. We had the time of our lives. And for it was a moment. And people, we could watch it online. It was great. 
Uh, people see it and go, why don't you guys come back? You were amazing. No, <laughs> it's done. Uh, you know, if some TV show, The Tube, somebody has a, let's remember The Tube 50 years later and bring some of the greatest shows of, 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 of you know, in the history of The Tube. And they asked Twisted Sister, uh, like, you know what? Yeah, we'll go do a song. You know, I mean, that for a mo- that's a moment. That's a song. But, yeah. but getting up on that stage and doing a full set, having that responsibility, it ain't happening because I'm not a shit talker no. like most of the other people. And by the way, and, and I want to say to all the people, you know, people get upset when I say you know, you're mocking, you know, Scorpions, Kiss, Motley, blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But um, I, I didn't tell you to retire. As a matter of fact, you don't have to. Your fans don't want you to stay forever. Stay forever. Rush stayed until Neil passed, you know. Uh, Metallica says, eh, you know, they don't think they're ever going to retire officially, you know, and maybe they'll just stop playing one day or whatever. They got. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but that's fine. Just don't sell me a No More Tour shirt. Just don't sell me a premium ticket. Don't sell me a tour book. Don't sell me that stuff. And then change your mind. Three-year farewell tour in. We changed our mind because we haven't played everywhere. No, Scorpions, you played everywhere three times. Three times. Okay? Time to go. You said you were going. (laughs) That's bullshit. Okay? Just don't announce you're leaving. Stay forever. We love you. We don't want you to leave. Blue Oyster Cult have tour jackets on tour forever. Terrifies me. But that's their statement. We're never retiring. We'll always be playing. God bless you. And I'll never shame them for going out there and keep doing it. They're, do, they're living with they, their dream. And there are people coming to see them. God bless them. But uh, they didn't go out there and say, we're signing in blood. This is it. Farewell. <laughs> Three years later, big checks waved in her face. We're back. We're back. And now members are aging out and replacing members. That's bullshit. Bullshit. And there we go. Well, Dee, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you for this last hour or so. I absolutely loved it. Everyone get out and buy frats and uh, make... Um, are we going to get a follow-up? I didn't ask that one. Is there, is there likely to be a follow-up? I'm very... You know, I'm I'm very... Um, I can see myself writing another book. I, I wrote my memoirs and I wrote frats. I enjoy the process. Uh, right now, I'm gearing up. I've got a movie I, I wrote called My Enemy's Enemy that I'm supposed to be directing. We start, it just keeps getting pushed back. Um, and then I'm, I've just started down the path of writing a new screenplay, um, uh, not a book, uh, called Speed Demons. Uh, and uh, it's about, uh, based on a real story. Uh, anyway, but I, I would get, but anyway, so I'm always writing. It's my passion now. And I, and I will say, I'm going to say, we're good, we're good time. I still have a few minutes. Uh, what I like about writing is it's ageless. It's faceless. It's colorless. It's sexless. And by that, I mean, um, you know, I've been limited by this, <laughs> what I have, what I was given to work with. Okay. So, uh, yet when I'm writing a book, I could be a 14 year old African, um, African American lesbian. As long as my words resonate true on the page and the person reading it or acting it, uh, believe them. And it doesn't matter that I'm an old white dude, uh, you know, old straight white dude. It all comes down to what's on the page. And if it's so I just feel this 
as I get older and, uh, you know, I, and I try to have some sort of dignity, I've always, I feel that the, the words on the page are something that allow me really great freedom. Uh, and that I don't have being in a band or acting for that matter, being, being the, 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 the talent on a television show or being on a reality show or whatever crazy shit I'm doing. <laughs> oh my God. I'll tell you. So I, I was roasted a few years ago and, uh, Zach Wilde was there. And, uh, so Zach gets up there and says, D, you're surrounded by friends and family who love you. He says, this isn't a roast. It's an intervention. You got to stop doing reality TV. <laughs> and at that point, I had done pretty much anything in the States with the word celebrity in front of it. It was a celebrity or turned down, uh, or turned down to, I, but, but I, I just really just did way too much reality TV. And, and but so the, the, yeah, this I writing. It's free. I'm freed and I can do whatever I want. So expect more books, screenplays, articles, things like that from D. Snyder. Don't expect more music. Uh, go back and enjoy the stuff that I did. I love, and by the way, I love you all for wanting more. I love you all for not wanting to, uh, to, to see me go, but that's partially because your memories of me are really positive. Yeah. The shows you've seen are great memories. I don't want you to see that show where you frown and you go turn your finger. He used to be much better or he used to really run around a lot more. I don't want to be there. I don't want you to see that. So just remember me, you know, for the good times. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been a great time for me. So thank you so much for your time, Dee. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. Great talking to you. And again, uh, thanks for working with me on the schedule. I appreciate that. There you go, the brilliant D. Snyder there. Another fantastic guest with some great stories. I really hope you did enjoy that one. So that's it for me then and this week's show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app so you get all the episodes. I've got some great guests lined up to bring you. Plus, leave a five-star review on the podcast app that you use because it really does make a big difference. It'd be a huge, huge help for me. Thank you so much. But that's it until next week's episode. So until then, take care. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.